Witness Docs from Stitcher. Previously on Ernie's Secret. My phone was tapped, my car was bombed, my mail was open and scotch tape back. You know, all these things were not normal. I mean, clearly we were being watched. Ernest was someone who, in my opinion, was not a man who kowtowed. I see him as more of an asset than a deficit to everything we did. Mr. Withers made a decision. He made a decision that he wanted to be an FBI informant. It was a choice. For whatever reasons, this worked for him, and this was a role he was comfortable with. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Several thousand Negro demonstrators are participating in this largest civil rights demonstration ever in Memphis, Tennessee. It's March 28, 1968. Police are on hand with about 600 officers. Almost the entire force is standing by here in case any trouble might break out. 1,300 black sanitation workers have been striking for just over six weeks. And today, Martin Luther King Jr. is flying in from New York to lead a march in their support. The strikers are already waiting outside of Claiborne Temple, a massive church just south of Beale Street, where the march is set to begin. Ernest Withers is there, too. He's taking photos, as usual, but this time he's also helping out. The protest signs that day were attached to wooden sticks, and Ernest had been the one who rented the saw used to make them. Ernest gathers the striking workers outside for a group portrait. They stand in loose formation, about 30 across, several rows deep, tightly packed. They raise their signs above their heads as Ernest steps back and peers down through the lens of his camera. In the frame, an indelible image, hundreds of black workers each holding a sign with the same simple message. I am a man. Dr. Martin Luther King's massive downtown march on Memphis is now underway. Several thousand Negroes are marching toward City Hall at this time. Many of the demonstrators are carrying the sign, I am a man. They stretch out for several blocks. Dr. King is up front, his arms linked with the other leaders. He looks worried, and he should be. Something is about to happen that had never happened to him before. has just broken out downtown. Chaos has just broken out downtown. All right, Negro youths are smashing windows. Bobby Doctor is one of thousands in the crowd. All hell broke loose with these big placard holders that were used to break out windows of stores on Beale Street. The wooden sticks that had been attached to the protest signs, the ones that Ernest Withers had helped to provide, were now being used by a group of kids to break windows. Dr. King had faced plenty of violence in Selma, in Montgomery, but for the first time ever, 
the violence was coming from within one of his marches. We repeat, several Negro youths started running down Main Street, smashing windows as they ran. Police have formed a cordon across Main Street at this time in an attempt to at least calm the demonstration, which has gotten completely out of hand. The Negro youths are shouting at this time, go, go, go. The police have formed a cordon, and they're not permitting the march to move any further. Before long, the police are beating the marchers, seemingly indiscriminately. People scatter in all directions. Tear gas is fired. King is marshaled away. And we're trying to flee the area ourselves. Police are now again chasing more Negro youths in an attempt to break up this wild melee disturbance on Main Street. Ernest is in the mayhem, and his photographs tell the story, moment by moment. Here's Bobby Doctor again. There was one guy in particular they singled out, the police did. They chased him and chased him, and they finally caught him. Now, there was a picture of that particular series that was done by Ernie. Ernie showed it to me. You could see them chasing him. That was one photograph. The next photograph, you could see them catching him, okay? The third photograph, you could see them beating him with those sticks. The fourth photograph, he was on the ground, bloody, passed out, blood all over the place. The last photograph, the officers who were beating him turned around, walking away from his body in the prone position, with their badge numbers covered. Downtown Memphis is a picture of chaos. And those wooden sticks, the ones from the I Am A Man signs, the ones held high in Ernest's most famous photograph, they had been used to start the riot. This is Unfinished, Ernie's Secret. I'm Wesley Lowry. Martin Luther King Jr. was despondent. He had fled the violent scene downtown and checked into a Holiday Inn about a mile and a half away. According to reports at the time, he crawled into bed, still fully clothed, and pulled the covers up over his head. Speaking to his friend Ralph Abernathy, King said, maybe we just have to admit that the day of violence is here. Until now, Ernest Withers, the photographer and FBI informant, has been our primary protagonist. But for the next two episodes, we're going to widen our lens. We're going to zoom out from Ernest to focus on a major inflection point in the fight for civil rights. We're going to trace Dr. King's last two visits to Memphis, and we're going to look at a raging debate among activists about the future of the movement. But to tell that story, we need to start two years earlier, in the hot summer of 1966. It's June, and Dr. King is hiking along Mississippi Highway 51, leading the nonviolent March Against Fear through the state. King hadn't planned to be here. Just days before, James Meredith, the same activist who had integrated Ole Miss four years earlier, had started a solo journey from Memphis to Jackson, Mississippi. He was marching to encourage black voter registration and to challenge white intimidation. But on just the second day of his walk, Meredith was shot and wounded by a white supremacist. Activists across the country were horrified. Before long, his one-man protest had grown into a major civil rights demonstration, and a demonstration of how the movement was changing. By now, Malcolm X had been assassinated. 
the Watts riots had happened in L.A. The war in Vietnam was ratcheting up, and young men were being drafted. Young activists were thinking in new, more radical ways, growing impatient with the lack of progress. And so this march became something of a turning point. Across the country, Dr. King was seen as the living symbol of the civil rights movement. But in reality, he was only part of it. King didn't control James Meredith or any of the other young activists who had poured into the movement. But at a moment like this, much of the nation and the media turned to King for a response. It fell to him to show up in support of Meredith's campaign. Let me say first that this march is nonviolent. It is a nonviolent expression of our determination to be free. This is the principle of the march, and certainly we intend uh, to keep this march nonviolent. By now, there was an open debate among black activists whether the utility of nonviolence had run its course, if it was time to try something different. That no one in this country is asking the white community in the South to be nonviolent. And that, in a sense, is giving them a free license to go ahead and shoot us at will. Stokely Carmichael, a young movement leader, marched next to King in Mississippi. As the men marched, they debated. Two black freedom fighters advancing two philosophies for liberation. And of course, Ernest Withers was there too. There's even a photo of him. He's walking alongside Dr. King, James Lawson, and Stokely Carmichael, with a camera around his neck. Officially, Ernest was part of the press caravan, but he was also passing on a lot of details about the march to the FBI. I quickly became a marshal. Put the little thing on your arm. The days-long march depended on the support of volunteers like Kobe Smith, a 19-year-old college student from Memphis. And being a marshal had its advantages. Oh, it was great for me. I enjoyed it. There were girls I didn't know. It was like being on a picnic. At night, we cooked around a big open fire and slept on the ground. What Kobe didn't know then was that this march would shape the course of his life. Kobe had joined the march as part of Dr. King's crowd, but he found himself gravitating towards the younger leaders, leaders like Stokely Carmichael. Stokely and I became friends It wasn't just Stokely. A lot of the leadership of SNCC was there. SNCC was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and 24-year-old Carmichael was the chairman. After years of sit-ins and marches, freedom rides, and voter registration drives in the Deep South, SNCC was now a war-hardened group. Some of them were developing more militant ideas about the direction the movement should take. Every day, marching down the, the highway, we'd be debating with Dr. King. You know, he was a great teacher. He would talk to us about everything, the movement, the value of it, the reasons we were doing it. Dr. King would say, you know, this is a nonviolent march that we're on. If someone assaults you, you turn the other cheek. I said, man, that ain't happening here. I'm too quick, and I'm young, agile, and hostile. (laughs) One night during the march, Kobe said a gang of white men overran their camp with bats and axe handles. Faced with that kind of attack, Kobe said that some of the marchers didn't want to be passive anymore. So the guys from the north were interested in going home and getting their guns. In another incident, Stokely Carmichael was arrested after a confrontation with the police. After his release, he caught up with the marchers and addressed them at a rally. The only way we're going to stop them white men from whipping us is to take over. We've been saying freedom for six years, and we ain't got nothing. 
What we're going to start saying now is black power. For young people like Kobe Smith, that message was inspiring. I decided that I was going to cast my lot with the leadership of SNCC. Why? Why SNCC? Man, have you ever met Stokely Carmichael? I I haven't. This is the most charismatic brother you could hope to meet. He was able to say the kinds of things that King wouldn't say. Like what? Instead of turning another cheek, you need to whip some ass. (laughs) That was appealing to you. Oh, sure, it was appealing. Man, it was appealing. On November 29, 1966, the FBI opened a file on Kobe Vernon Smith. Bill Lawrence wrote that Smith had divorced himself from the moderate NAACP. The agent wanted regular updates on Smith, and Ernest Withers was the man for the job. Do you remember how you first met Ernest Withers? Ernest Withers was a lifelong family friend. Uh, He would come to our house here and uh, take family photographs. Ernest was like a father to Kobe, so it was easy to track him. He passed along his new addresses when Kobe briefly moved to Louisiana, and he handed over to the FBI Kobe's phone number and, of course, identification photos. Date, 7-21-67. From Special Agent William H. Lawrence. Subject, Kobe Vernon Smith. Previous communication in the file of Kobe Vernon Smith and the SNCC file have indicated that Smith returned to Memphis on or about 7-1-67 and generally had made statements indicating that he would like to see a good race riot and was going to turn Memphis upside down. Since that time, efforts have been made to determine whether or not Smith, as indicated, was going to form a SNCC chapter in Memphis and establish a Freedom House. Nope, not a SNCC chapter. Kobe had another idea. He wanted to start a black power organization of his own. He got together with another Memphis native, a Morehouse College student, a natural leader named Charles Cabbage. Cab was, was very persuasive. He was a, the girls like Cab. But he's very serious. He was a scholar, too. Very thoughtful kind of fella. And we became organizers. We thought we had a great start. At the same time Kobe was being drawn deeper into the Black Power movement, Ernest was becoming more firmly planted within the FBI. The FBI was ramping up its surveillance. The worst race riots since those two years ago in the Watts section of Los Angeles rocked New Jersey's largest city, Newark, for five consecutive days and nights. In the summer of 1967, riots broke out in cities across the country. Cities like Newark and Detroit. Looting and arson rocked the city of Detroit in the worst outbreak of urban racial violence this year. After the riots, Ernest became part of a new FBI surveillance effort called the Ghetto Informant Program which had more than 7,000 informants embedded in urban centers across the country. And with the new position came more assignments, more opportunities for a payday. Ernest was assigned that confidential informant number that we talked about earlier in the series, ME338R. In Memphis, a lot of what the FBI was learning about the new generation of young black militants was coming from Ernest Withers. Ernest knew Kobe's parents. He gave him and Charles Cabbage advice. He loaned them money. Cabbage had been an athlete. Ernest knew him through sports, and he knew me through being at all of the movement activities. He even let the men, hard at work on their new black power organization, meet at his studio. We're walking down Bill Street, and Ernest said, Kobe, 
Come over here. You and Cam, come over here. Come over here and pose for a picture. He took us across the street. Ernest C. Withers, confidential source, Memphis, Tennessee. A professional photographer made available to Ryder copies of photographs he had taken on 8-1067 as follows. Seven copies of photographs of Charles Laverne Cabbage, male Negro, 234 Ingle Street, Memphis, Tennessee. In August 1967, Ernest handed the FBI 16 new photos of Charles Cabbage and Kobe Smith, including the ones taken in his studio. Withers took these photos under the pretext that he was going to send them to Jet Magazine, a Negro publication, which was potentially interested in the story concerning Smith and Cabbage. As noted above, both photos were taken on 8-10-67 and are excellent likenesses of Cabbage and Smith. We didn't know he was also selling those pictures to the FBI. Mm -hmm. But Ernest was um, quite an enterprising person. By early 1968, the two men, Cab and Kobe, had formed the Black Organizing Project, the BOP. It was modeled after the Black Panther Party, and it called for a Black-run school board, for Black police patrolling their neighborhoods, and for Black economic independence. They recruited Black kids from the neighborhoods. They advocated against gang violence. And the kids liked their style. Black shades, afros, military jackets— they adopted the name of a popular sci-fi TV show, The Invaders. The Invaders. Kobe says they were like aliens to the community, as if we had just landed a spaceship and gotten off. The Invaders were high schoolers and college students and other young people on the fringes. Some of them showed up with rap sheets. Well, what, what is this? This is a... Uh... A vest or a jacket that uh, the invaders will wear. Kobe and I are talking in his home in Memphis, at the house he's lived in all his life. He shows me an old jacket, folded tightly inside a glass frame, and hung on the wall, like a retired flag. It's green, with invaders written on the back in bright yellow letters. We used to have army fatigue jackets. And so you all looked pretty militant. Oh yeah, we were pretty militant. An intimidating group of people. Oh yeah. Was that the point? Well... Not really. I weighed 100 and maybe 50 pounds. How damn intimidating would a kid who weighed 150 pounds be to you? It depends. How many of them are there? If you came with a few hundred buddies, maybe. Well, they were pretty intimidating. All you had to do to say you were invaders, wear a tiki around your neck, let your hair grow, come to our meetings. At the meetings, we would propaganda ask let people make decisions about whether they wanted to join us or join the army. What was the ideology of the invaders? Black power was the ideology. The numbers count. If we have numbers, then we ought to be in control. Control was exactly what the FBI was worried about. This was a new, radicalized generation of black activists. Young activists who had no problem challenging authority. But law enforcement weren't the only ones who wanted the invaders gone. So did some of the local civil rights leaders. That conflict after the break.
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. February 1st, 1968 was a cold, wet day in Memphis. And so Echo Cole, a 36-year-old sanitation worker, climbed into the back of his garbage truck, trying to get out of the rain. Suddenly, an electrical short activated the trash compactor. A crewmate, Robert Walker, tried to pull Cole to safety. Instead, both men were swept into the truck and crushed. And uh, when that happened, everything hit the fan. Eleven days later, the city's mostly black sanitation workers went on strike. Activists in Memphis were eager to support them. But the question of how would lay bare the divisions within the movement. Bobby Doctor was a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, an independent government agency charged with investigating and reporting on civil rights issues. He was in Memphis to monitor racial tensions there. The sanitation workers were poorly paid. They were poorly respected. They were poorly recognized. They sought immediate recognition, immediate increase in salary. And we had a strong mayor who was against all of that for them. The city's black ministers organized a strike fund for the workers. They held rallies and sit-ins. They picketed City Hall, and they were met by police mace, billy clubs, and tear gas. Memphis Mayor Henry Loeb wouldn't budge. The civil rights community took the lead role. But the key and the mistake they made was um, they didn't involve the young people, the militants. And uh, that was a tremendous mistake. When you say the militant community, who are you talking about? I'm mainly talking about the invaders. They were basically a gang that was doing all sorts of things in the city of Memphis at that time. But they were yearning to become a civil rights organization. The ministers concentrated on negotiating a settlement with the city's white leadership. But the invaders wanted something bigger. They wanted more self-determination. They wanted to disrupt the status quo. Here's Bobby Doctor again. And, of course, I sought to bring together the two factions of of the civil rights community um, as best I could. At first, the ministers, people like the Reverend James Lawson, reluctantly accepted the invaders at their mass meetings. James Lawson was one of the brightest civil rights experts I've ever met, to be honest with you. He had a good mind, but James had a problem with militants. He had a problem with militants. And so he often had confrontations with them. The invader's attitude was not an attitude of pulling the community together. James Lawson is now 93 years old, but his recall is incredible. You might call him a living treasure of the civil rights movement. He was one of the architects of nonviolent direct action. And at the time of the sanitation workers' strike, that's what he was pushing. Invaders, they represented young kids who growing up are exposed to the racism and are wildly against it, but they half misunderstand it. They are more cultural entities than they are an intellectual or spiritual 
perspective in the struggle. I'm very clear about this now. If it can be said that the established civil rights community in Memphis was generally condescending towards the invaders, the young militants didn't hide their disdain for the ministers either. They really didn't want to be involved with black power at all. And so their effort was to ignore our presence. This is John B. Smith. No relation to Kobe Smith, except that John was also a leader of the invaders and one of the group's more vocal members. You had the old line leaders, the NAACP and the preachers. They had supported segregation in Memphis. I, I mean, they were not out advocating it, but they benefited from it. And it was a system that had worked well for them. And we came along talking about destroying that system. And so we really were in opposition to them, even though we were supposed to be on the same side. Ernest Withers had a front row seat to this growing divide. He was feeding a constant stream of details to the FBI. In a memo dated February 27, 1968, Ernest described a scene where John B. Smith stands and tells the striking sanitation workers, you'd better get some guns. Get your guns. You're going to need them before this is over. You can't pray your way out. It went over like a bomb. Once I finished speaking, Reverend Lawson jumped to the podium and disavowed any connection to me. And they were about nonviolence and uh, that they shouldn't listen at what I had to say because uh, they were not about black power. In another memo, dated March 6, 1968, Ernest reported that dozens of members of the invaders had showed up to a strikers meeting. They were wearing their military-style jackets. They passed out pamphlets that included instructions on how to make a Molotov cocktail. By then, the sanitation worker strike in Memphis had caught the attention of Dr. King. His work and activism had become more and more focused on poor people and economic justice. And that's exactly what these men, this campaign, represented. You are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. On March 18th, King came to Memphis to lend his support. More than 25,000 people showed up for a rally. The thing for you to do is stay together. Say to everybody in this community that you're going to stick it out to the end until every demand is met and that you're going to say we ain't going to let nobody turn us around. King promised to return to lead the protest. But on the scheduled day, March 22nd, 17 inches of snow fell on Memphis. A new date was set, March 28th. Later today, as the march moves up toward City Hall, Dr. Martin Luther King will speak to the striking workers and their sympathizers, now estimated somewhere between five and 8,000. We haven't The invaders had been shut out of the planning for the march, and they're full of resentment. The night before, they vote to boycott. I had decided not to go that night, but when I got up the next morning, it was like, I mean, how would you not go? <laughs> this is the biggest 
thing that has happened in terms of civil rights in Memphis. Dr. Martin Luther King's massive downtown march on Memphis is now underway. Several thousand Negroes are marching toward City Hall at this time. Many of the demonstrators are carrying the sign, I am a man. They stretch out for several blocks. Things are a mess from the beginning. Dr. King's plane arrives late, and the march is an hour behind. The crowd surges, and then it stalls as it turns onto Main Street. People everywhere are holding those I am a man signs on those wooden sticks. They had also made this huge mistake of stapling these I am a man posters to sticks. And that gave everybody clubs that that wanted one. I mean, it was like a carnival atmosphere. And when we started, we walked on the sidewalk because we were not a part of the march. Well, people in the march that looked up and saw the invaders going down the sidewalk started getting out of the march and getting in the line behind the invaders. And when we got to 2nd Street, the march stopped. Chaos has just broken out downtown. Chaos has just broken out downtown. All right, Negro youth are smashing windows. And it went violent. And it was bloody violent. That's Bill Atkins. He was one of the marchers that day. Police were extremely brutal. Extremely brutal. They beat down, hurt, wounded Man, woman, child, elderly, it did not matter. If you got in their way, you got whooped. I always tell the story, I think I ran farther that day than ever have in my life. Ernest is right in the mayhem, and his photographs tell the story, moment by moment. Store windows shattered by young men using wooden sticks, bricks, and pipes. The police with their nightsticks, wearing gas masks. People fleeing in every direction. Dozens are hospitalized and a 16-year-old named Larry Payne is shot and killed by police. Uh, the Memphis streets, for as far as we can see, are littered with signs that these demonstrators were carrying when the demonstration got underway. As we look down the sidewalk on Hernando in front of Claiborne Temple, we see signs saying, I am a man. The finger-pointing begins immediately. Agent Bill Lawrence drafts a memo to FBI Director Hoover, blaming the ministers, like James Lawson, for having unwittingly armed the crowd with the wooden sticks from those signs. Others blame King. They accuse him of having abandoned the march, leading to chaos. But most of the blame lands on the invaders. Police, clergy, movement leaders, the media, all of them accuse the invaders of sabotaging the march. And with all their talk of fighting and guns and Molotov cocktails, with their criminal records, their afros and tiki tops, even the phrase black power, it's not surprising that they were the ones who drew the most scrutiny. Let's face it, it wouldn't be the first or the last time that young black protesters would be blamed for looting and for breaking windows. Reading through the FBI reports about the march, at first it seems like Ernest Withers was also pointing a finger at the invaders. Memo dated March 29, 1968. In a long memo written the day after the march, Bill Lawrence wrote that Ernest told him that prior to the start of the March 28, 1968 march, 
that John Smith and some of his associates were, in his opinion, inciting to violence in that they were indiscriminately giving out the four-foot pine poles to various teenage youngsters in the area. And John Smith was heard by Source One to tell these youngsters, identities not known, not to be afraid to use these sticks. But then, in another memo, Ernest told the FBI this. There is no evidence that any of the BOP group participated in the looting, and in fact, Source 1, who is particularly close to this group, advised that he saw many of them after the initial rioting and looting started, and they definitely had not personally been involved in the looting. The invaders themselves denied having any responsibility for the violence. Bobby Doctor, from the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, says he knew all of the invaders. He worked with them and he didn't recognize any of the young men who were breaking windows. None of them were invaders. Not one of them did I recognize that. Some of them even had suits and ties on, and the militants in Memphis never wore suits and ties. They used to kid me about wearing a suit and a tie, which is why I know they were shipped in. They were not local. I can assure you of that. What Bobby is hinting at is the idea that there was some kind of plot to sabotage the march that people were planted in the march by an outside force. This is an idea that had legs. A decade later, a congressional committee would investigate and dismiss this theory. But when the news eventually broke that Ernest had been an FBI informant, people started to wonder if he had been involved in the march's demise. I really now blame Ernest Withers for that. Totally. Bill Atkins believes Ernest was part of a deliberate plot by authorities to discredit Dr. King. After all, we know it was Ernest who rented the saw that was used to make those sticks. Instead of just holding up the, the cardboard signs, we had signs with wood on them. Of course, the wood was used to break the windows out of the pawn shops on Bill Street when the march uh, began. This was a bit abnormal. Protest signs in Memphis were usually tied to a string and worn around a person's neck, not attached to a wooden stick. That was a plan. Ernest set that up. He bought that wood. He set that up. He set that march up to go violent. We don't know whose idea it was to use the sticks on the signs that day. And we don't know who the young men were who used those sticks to break the store windows. Nonviolence can be as contagious as violence. The next day, Dr. King faced a slew of national reporters and had the embarrassing task of explaining what had gone wrong in Memphis. I'm convinced that it took place yesterday because of a lack of marshals, because of a failure to communicate with groups that had been discussing in their inner chambers violence and because they felt that they had been left out. There's nothing to do but bring them in. And by bringing them in, they distill their violent impulses in the emotions and the outpourings of a nonviolent movement. Now, you and Charles Cabbage, you all meet with King yes. after, after the riot breaks up. Yes. What, what was that meeting like? It was really very sad. Edwina Harold Lenore was the only woman leader in the invaders. The day after the riot, before Dr. King left Memphis, he met with a few of them, including Edwina. She says that King wanted to reassure them. He knew that the things that happened 
weren't our fault. It wasn't our fault. And he kept reminding us that we had to stay down, out of sight, remain low-key as possible. And even though things were going crazy and they were blaming us for all this stuff, he said, just stay calm. It, it was hard to listen to because when you're doing something, you're blaming people for stuff they didn't do. It's painful. Dr. King vowed to return to Memphis. He had to return. He had to make good on a peaceful demonstration. He couldn't let the world believe that nonviolent direct action had lost its relevance, had lost its effectiveness. On the way back to Memphis, he seemed to have overcome his depression and was his old self again and was really teasing us and joking and um, there was no fear or anxiety on his part. What King couldn't have known then was that this march in Memphis, the one that turned into a riot, would be the last demonstration of his life. That's next time on Unfinished, Ernie's Secret. This season of Unfinished is a co-production of Stitcher and Scripps. Our senior producer is Roy Hurst. The editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our show is written by Ellen Weiss. Executive producers are Camille Stanley and Ellen Weiss. Our music is composed by Edward Tex Miller. Mixing is by Casey Holford. Special thanks to reporter and author Mark Paraskia for sharing documents, sources, and his years of work on this story. Thanks also to the WGBH archives. We had production help from McKenna Smith and Suzanne Reber. Our FBI documents were brought to life by actor Corey Landis. Fact-checking was by Kelvin Bias. Stitcher's vice president of content is Peter Clowney. If you like the show and believe in this kind of storytelling, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. It'll help more people discover Unfinished. I'm Wesley Lowry. Thanks for listening.